vividly remember um, just everything about it. I remember it was cold. I had a jacket on. I was bundled up in everything, but there was a light breeze, and it just seemed to cut through my jacket, and I was shivering. But I wasn't shivering due to the cold. I was shivering from the words that our guide was saying. Right here in the middle of the courtyard, they were forced to squat down, hands straight out, and hold it. If they stood up, they were shot. If they fell down, they were shot for an entire night. And if they survived the night, then they were sent back to hard manual labor for 12 to 16 hours with very little food. This was only one of the horrors that the prisoners of the Neuengamme concentration camp just outside of Hamburg had to endure. From there, we walked over to the found, what, uh, what used to be a building. It was now just foundations about the size of um, the space between the chairs up front here. And we were told about how this was once a solitary confinement, but then was converted into a makeshift gas chamber. And hundreds of Soviet soldiers were crammed into this space at a time. And gas was lobbed in, killing all of them. Then we went to another building, about the size of the sanctuary. And all the way around the outside were banners, hung for every single month that the camp was open. And on every month, it listed the names of the people who died. And as we went around the building from banner to banner, the list kept getting longer and longer until you got to the last year when the list of names was so long that the space between the ceiling and the floor wasn't long enough to contain them all. And there was a big bundle of cloth representing all of the names of people who died that month that couldn't be fit in there. Over 42,000 people died in that camp that I'd never heard of before. And it wasn't even a death camp. This was a work camp. They were there to actually make something. They were building a canal from the River Elba to the city of Hamburg and to staff the factories of the private companies that built right next to the concentration camp to take advantage of free labor. And there with us were a group of soldiers. Now, at first I thought that these soldiers were there um, to kind of add to the scene to make you feel the weight and the intimidation of the German soldiers. I thought that they were part of the, the memorial. But then I found out and I heard that these were actual officers in the German army. And that every year they had to go to concentration camps to be reminded and to learn just like we were, of the cycle that causes a nation like Germany to be deceived by a savior like Hitler. The cycle where the oppressed have had enough and they look to a worldly savior to deliver them from oppression only to become oppressors themselves. Around the time of Christ, the Jewish people did this. Perhaps you've heard of King Herod. The Jewish people looked to King Herod to be kind of their political savior to, to help ease the oppression of Rome. And then in turn to, 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 to preserve that privilege they were experiencing, they then in turn persecuted the Christians and everyone else who wasn't quite like them. In our own country's history, we're very proud of the fact that our first immigrants came over from Europe to escape political and religious persecution. 
But then as our nation's history went on, we in turn became the oppressors of the Native Americans and of the Africans. And then at the beginning of the 20th century, the Western world thought we had it figured out. Humanity was, was on the verge of a perfection of utopia. Things were as good as they were going to get. And then World War I happened. And in the aftermath of that, the victors so oppressed the German people that they created conditions prime for a man like Hitler to rise up and take power. This cycle of oppressed people looking for a worldly savior to save them, whether it's a political figure, an economic theory, a social system, or militaristic might, etc., insert whatever you want to there, only to become oppressors themselves has occurred throughout history, throughout the world. Every nation has this in their history, time after time after time again. Because we as humans have a tendency to look in all the wrong places for salvation. Our scripture for today was written to Christians in the early first and the late first, early second century, um, experiencing severe oppression at the hands of the Romans. Roadways were lined coming into Rome with crucified Christians hung on crosses. Rome was lit by Christians being doused in oil, hung on a cross, and then burned alive. Many of our early martyrs had to choose between denying Christ and being executed. And the temptation to look to a worldly sufferer, political figure, someone to relieve their suffering would have been really strong, just as it is today, just as it has been throughout history. But John, in his letter in Revelation, declares that worldly salvation is a false deception. For salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, if you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to or it'll be up on the screen to Revelation chapter 7 and starting in verse 9. And as you read along, I want you to kind of consider this question as you're turning to find that. What would it look like for this cycle to be broken? Because typically, an oppressing people have something that unifies them. They have a geographic um, place where they're all from the same place or, or, or they all look the same. They're all ethnically similar or linguistically the same. They speak the same language, something that unites them up over and against everyone else. But here's the vision that John has shown in heaven. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. They should, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
What a beautiful picture. As we dig into this, let's take a moment. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, as we hear of this vision of heaven, of paradise, Lord, we long for it. And so, Lord, send your Holy Spirit, minister to us, show us in our hearts what this is, what the message you're trying to show us. Lord, may this time together this morning not be to my glory or for my benefit or for my praise, but for yours only, Lord. May your words be spoken. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The heavens declare that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we gather here today into celebration of that fact because when Christ died, we were offered forgiveness for our sins. And yet just in the act of dying, the the oppression of death still lingered. But when he rose from the dead, now we are offered salvation for eternity. And that's the picture that we read here. We read of us already celebrating in victory. We already celebrate his victory. If you look with me in verse 9, it's a great multitude of people, including every nation and tribe and color and language in the throne room of God. They're waving palm branches and shouting out his glory because this is a picture of a party, a true party, right? One that doesn't have power dynamics. There's no, there's no employee Christmas party here with a boss and employees and watching what you say and do and everything. There's no authority structures dictating the relationships between people. There's no self-consciousness that prevents anyone from joining in with their fullest in praise of God. Like we kind of have a little bit this morning, if I may be honest, because they declare with all of their being in verse 10, that salvation belongs to the God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. How do these people get here? Look with me in verse 14. These are the saints, the ones who have believed in the risen Jesus Christ as Savior, who persevere through the trials and tribulations of sin's false saviors, like our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka this morning, and celebrate their salvation from God. And this, again, is the reason that we gather this morning, to celebrate the salvation that Jesus conquered or accomplished on the cross And in rising from the grave. Because if we believe in Jesus and in the work that he did, then we have washed our robes white and they are sparkling and clean. There are no stains or rips or tears or imperfections that survive that. Because Jesus has done what no other worldly savior could do. He has set an end point. He has declared an end point to this oppression of sin and death. And John goes on to paint this beautiful picture of what this looks like. He says, we will be sheltered by his presence. No longer will any force with the intention of harming us or deceiving us be able to affect us or even come near us. We won't have to worry about tomorrow for there won't be any cancer or car crashes or diseases or deterioration due to age or anxiety or depression or loneliness. And we will drink of the living water so that we won't feel the pains of extreme hunger or thirst or dehydration or the scorching heat of a St. Louis summer and and humidity. Maybe, but it won't harm us. But there's even more to this living water aspect than just relief from hunger and thirst because the living water that we will partake in is the Holy Spirit himself. And we will get our fill of his power. 
meaning that we will live to the fullest that we were created to be. We're created to be the images of God, and he will allow us to live to it, into it as our fullest. Our love and relationships won't be categorized um, by bitterness or backstabbing or a lack of respect, and they won't be hard. It will be easy to love one another. The talents and gifts that God gives, has given to us will be expressed in heights that we can't realize here on earth because it seems like every time that I'm trying to do something, there's always something preventing me from doing it well. There's a time constraint or a money constraint or, or a personnel constraint or a talent constraint or something like that. But when we are given the Holy Spirit's power to our fill, then our music, our art, our craftsmanship, our gardening, our cooking, our engineering, our teaching, or whatever will exceed the heights of what we know here on earth. And lastly, our dominion over creation, the way in which we relate to the plants and the animals and the sky and the ocean and the ground, will not curse it any longer. It won't bring it to ruin. We won't have to worry about global warming or billions of pounds of plastic in the ocean or making more species extinct due to our failure. Because we already celebrate Christ's victory over the oppression of sin and death. And we'll make it thrive. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter with the beautiful flowers and the pastel colors and the cheeriness. But though we already celebrate Christ's victory, because we know that he has come and the kingdom of God is coming with him, the reign of sin is not yet over. We are not out of the great tribulation yet. There is an end point. We know it will end, but it is not here yet. And so we still are in the midst of it. And so as we go in and we read on in John, we find that we are not yet done interceding. Going on in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, that doesn't seem shocking to us because we're a white church and silence for half an hour in the presence of God isn't unnormal for us. We do that every Sunday, just about. But in heaven, that's crazy. That never has happened before. Because up until this point, there have been phrases and shouts of joy and praise that have been going eternally throughout this entire time until this point at which the seventh seal was opened and then there's silence. And John notices it. Because that's not the way it should be. Something extraordinary, something catastrophic has happened. And so to help us maybe get a picture of this, um, throughout Lent we've done some things where you're not just listening to me preaching, but you get to interact, right? So here's that point. So what we're going to do, there's, I'll have three phrases up on the screen when they get up there um, that are mentioned, that John mentions as being praised over and over and over again in the, in the presence of God in heaven. And so I'm going to divide you up into three sections. You're the first section, okay? You get number one. You're my second section. You get number two. You're my third section. You get number three. And so I'm going to cue each one of you in, but I want you to say those loudly, not, not self-conscious of the person next to you, right? I'm not going to stop and be like, I can't hear you. No, right? First time, do it well. You're doing this for the praise of God, not for me, not for the person beside you. You're doing it for God. So say it loud. Say it proud. Say it like you're in heaven and you're celebrating God already. And then we'll go on to the second section. Have you join in? You'll keep repeating. And then the third section, you'll keep repeating. And we'll keep going with that. And then at, at a certain point, I will give a big cue and we'll cut off. All right? 
All right, let's do this. I know this is different. This is awkward. We're going to embrace it and we're going to get into it. All right, first section. Are you ready? All right, ready? And holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Again, holy. All right, second section. Ready? Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive... Great. Third section. Ready? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And silence. What silenced them? We were silent for 15 seconds. They were silent for a whole half an hour in the presence of God. What caused all these praises of God to stop? Reading on in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 8. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Perhaps you'll recognize these phenomena from the Old Testament as kind of pronouncing God's impending presence. And over the course of chapter 8 and 9, if if we were to go on and read those next two chapters, we will see why heaven was silenced by our prayers. Because they were hurled down to earth and they exposed the totality of sin's corruption in this world. And it silenced them. Throughout the season of Lent leading up to today, we've we've talked about prayer. We've talked about how to pray, when to pray, fasting, when God says yes to prayer, and when God says no to prayer. And today, we get a glimpse of the heavenly reality of prayer's power and effect when it's hurled back down to earth. It announces the coming of God and it exposes the complete corruption of sin. That is, it exposes Satan's weapons against our humanity. Now, in our culture, what does that look like here in America? Well, I would say on on the surface, it looks like an overemphasis on individualism, an overemphasis on materialism, overemphasis on consumerism. And in those, the need for our community and for connection is ignored. And the result, the fruit that we get from ignoring those things are record levels of anxiety and depression, loneliness and feeling of being completely disconnected from the people around us. And in enters prayer. And as it's hurled down to earth, it strips away the showy attractiveness of sin. And it exposes the corruption of the systems lying underneath. And here's a few of them. The greedy exploitation of the poor. Anyone have a credit card with rewards? Cash back? 
How does that work? Well, your credit card company isn't just generous. They're not just giving you money out of their profits, right? They're charging a fee to the merchant. So in turn, for the merchant to keep up their profits, to run their business, they raise the prices of everything. Well, that's fine for us. We're getting the rewards back. But what about for the person that can't get a credit card, that can't get a a rewards level quite as high as us? Well, now they're paying for goods at that elevated price and they're not getting those same rewards for us. And so in a sense, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And I'm not telling you to go cut up all your credit cards because this is something that, that, that permeates our entire financial system from banking to the stock markets to everything. It is a system designed and created and perpetuated that allows the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. What about anyone got a smartphone? Yeah? On average, it takes 12 slaves to make a smartphone. What about your laptops? It takes even more to make those. And there's no possible way to buy a fair trade smartphone. There's no getting around it. Anything with a circuit board employs people at a slavery-like condition. What about when you go to the grocery store? I see rows of fruit and vegetables just sitting there for the taking. Well, how did they get there? You have migrant labor coming and picking them at less than minimum wage. What about our dairy products? Dairy farms have such a small margin of profit that they have to employ illegal immigrants at levels below poverty in order to even make a profit. I know, I'm from dairy farming land. Meat is the same way. What about your clothes? Right? I got a couple friends that are, in, that are started an apparel line, and they went to a national conference in Dallas looking for um, people to supply them fabric and clothes and T-shirts from in a fair trade market or in a way that doesn't promote sweatshops or doesn't come from sweatshops, and they got laughed at. Several thousand vendors, and they found maybe three that did that. This isn't even mentioning some of the things that maybe most of us don't want to admit to. Maybe pornography, prostitution. Yes, it happens here in St. Peter's. If we've engaged in any one of those things, you've contributed to a worldwide sex trafficking ring of about 22 million people. Continuing on, what about the complete distortion of our masculinity and so that men are only really allowed to show an emotion of anger, otherwise they're called weak And the results of that is you have an epidemic of domestic violence. Not just that, this is one of those things. Both against men and from men. It's not... That's the point I'm getting to. What about our justice system that disproportionately targets people of color? I was talking to a a black man who lives in O'Fallon. He's an electrician. He was working on his house one day just out in the driveway, and all of a sudden cop cars come screeching out. They come out, jump out with guns drawn in his own driveway because he's a black man. He'd done nothing wrong. Somebody had called the cops on him because they saw a black man in their neighborhood here in O'Fallon in St. Charles County. And he has dozens of stories like that. Or our political system that survives off of demonizing our neighbors. None of us want to be a part of it, and yet we have no choice but to be. Or maybe even more personally, what about a church? I'm not necessarily saying Christ church, but what about the church in general that's more 
concerned with its survival and its position of power and its relevancy rather than following Jesus. Why do I point all these things out? Why do I point out that we are actively engaged in oppressing people in slave-like conditions just by being a part of our society? Not to condemn you. That's not my goal here. My goal isn't to say that you're all bad people, not in the last least bit, but my goal is to show you that sin corrupts everything. And we can't escape it. Sin isn't just lying to your neighbor. It isn't just stealing something. It isn't these actions that we know we shouldn't do and so we try not to do. No, sin has so corrupted our world. It has a stranglehold on everything in this world so much that we have no choice but to be a part of it and contribute to it. There's nothing we can do. We can't extract ourselves from it. You have to have a smartphone. You have to clothe yourself. You have to eat food. And yet in all of these things, we are contributing to cycles and systems of sin and oppression. And there's nothing we can do about it. I say all of these things, and these are just five or six examples. There's several hundred more we can name off the top of our heads every single day that we all engage in. Because I've heard quotes like this. This this quote, supposedly Marcus Aurelius said, you might have heard it in Gladiator, but he says this, live a good life. If there are gods and they are just, then they will not care how devout you have been, but will welcome you based on the virtues you have lived by. How ignorant. How naive and how blind to think that any one of us could be a good man in a world that is so strangled by sin. I'm not a good man. None of us are good men in and of ourselves because we have no choice but to be a part and contribute to the system of sin. Sin has so corrupted everything about our world that we can't help. And it would take a world-altering event to change that reality. That's one of those messages of the cross. Sin, it's so, it's absurd. It doesn't make sense. Siri doesn't understand. (laughs) But the purpose of the church is to expose the systems of sin that we participate in through prayer, to destroy this myth that any of us could be a good and virtuous man because we don't have a choice in the matter. We can't even try to be because we... Our system won't let us. And then to point to the Savior who promises healing. Healing for all of the people that have been sinned against. For all of the people which we have been sinned against. And healing for all of those people that we have sinned against as well. And so when we get to heaven and we get to see that party that John describes, that it won't be awkward. We won't be like, oh man. I lived such a luxurious lifestyle in America and that I was contributing to a system that forced you into subhuman conditions in India, Vietnam, Thailand, China, whatever, name your nation. That awkwardness won't be there because Jesus so fully heals them and restores them and us. Because perhaps you've been feeling a little bit defensive. Because I would be, if I was sitting in your seats, and there's a man talking about me, talking about how you contribute to the slave trade and illegal immigration and poverty levels and oppression around the world, I would be getting a bit defensive in your seat. But also think about all of the ways that you've been sentenced and how much it hurts. And the effect that it's had on your life too. 
and the ways it's distorted our ability to feel emotions, to think correctly, to interact with one, each other, one another with a love that is easy. And in Christ's resurrection, he promises and he delivers in healing from that. And so when we're standing there with people from all the nations and all the tribes and all the languages healed, the only thing that will matter will be the glory and the power and the majesty of the God and Lamb who sit upon the throne. For salvation belongs to Him and only Him. In the same way, when I was standing in that concentration camp and it stripped away any notion I had that my life was hard, Because it's really hard to complain about anything when you're standing in a concentration camp. In the same way, so prayer strips away any pretense that this world can save itself. Because no matter our best efforts, these systems of sin, sin's stranglehold on us is so deeply ingrained, there is nothing that isn't touched by it and affected by it and shaped by it. And so we pray so that the deception of the world can be stripped away and the ugly corruption of sin is bared for all of us to see. And in the light of God's impending coming, that we would not cling to sin. Because if you go to the end of chapter 9 in Revelation, it talks about all those people, even though sin has been so fully exposed, that will cling to it. Don't let that be us. And instead, we will celebrate the salvation of the risen Lord. And right now, my heart is heavy. Because contemplating the sin and its, its absurdity and its totality and its corruption grieves my heart. And if you're feeling like me, there's a poem by George Herbert written back in 1633 that I think speaks to us on this Easter morning and hopefully raises our heart to the reality of Christ's resurrection is called the dawning. It goes like this. <clears throat> Awake, sad heart, whom sorrow ever drowns. Take up thine eyes which feed on earth. Unfold thy foreheads gathered into frowns. Thy Savior comes and with him mirth. Awake, awake, and with a thankful heart his comforts take. But thou dost still lament and pine and cry and feel his death, but not his victory. Arise, sad heart, if thou dost not withstand. Christ's resurrection thine may be. Do not, by hanging down, break from thy hand, which is as it riseth, as it riseth, raiseth thee. Arise and arise, and with his burial linen dry thine eyes. Christ left his grave clothes, that we might, when grief draws tears or blood, not want a handkerchief. Systems of sin of this world grieves. But the resurrection of our Savior brings joy. Amen. All right, would you pray with me? Dear Father, we long for that day when you will come and break this hold of sin upon our lives. Lord, we do what we do not want to do and we have no choice. But your power can shake the foundations of the earth and it will. And so we long for that day. 
And until then, Lord, send your Holy Spirit. Give us perseverance during this time of great tribulation. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.